Hello and welcome back to the conversations at the Review of Democracy. My name is Lorena Dracula. I'm an assistant editor here at Trevdem. And in this episode, we are joined by Vyosa Musliu. She's an assistant professor of international relations at Praia Universitet Brussels, a co-editor of Routledge Studies in Intervention and State Building, and an author of the book, Europeanization and State Building as Everyday Practices, Performing Europe in the Western Balkans. Professor Musliu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hello. So the first question is, um, we know that a lot of countries are still somewhere on their way to European integration. And through this process, there has been an increasing emphasis on performing a certain type of Europeanist. You argue that there needs to be a performative turn in European studies and demonstrate that the process of Europeanization is just as much about changing behaviors as it is a political project of EU integration. So what does it mean to perform Europeanness and how does your approach to Europeanization differ from previous scholarly ones? Processes of Europeanization and performances or exercises of performativity of Europe and of Europeanization are nothing new and they certainly have not started or are not pertinent only to the countries of the Western Balkans. When you look at previous rounds of enlargement uh, with countries of Central and Eastern Europe, you notice a certain uh, pattern, even though it might not have been called an exercise of performativity at that point. And I also want to clarify that I'm certainly not the one, not the first one to use the term performativity in the literature of Europeanization. Uh, there have been others who have talked about it, especially in relations to EU external relations and the way how the EU constructs and maintains its relations with its others. What I try to do in the book is try to give more emphasis to these sporadic voices who have been grappling with Europeanization and with notions of performance and performativity and try to suggest a new uh, research line, a proper research line on performativity in uh, Europeanization and especially in processes of European integration. Now, when we look at the bulk of the literature in Europeanization and EU external relations, most of this literature has um, uh, traditionally prioritized structures, institutions, elites, so very macro subjects uh, of uh, specific states, specific societies, and how they have negotiated, articulated uh, processes of Europeanization and integration. In the book that is uh, published with uh, the Rothschild series of intervention and state building, I wanted to bring the attention uh, to Europeanization as an everyday practice and as such draw attention to processes of Europeanization that touch uh, everyday aspects of uh, people, of different sectors uh, of the society, and how the notion of Europe or imaginations of Europe are co-opted by local populations, how are they internalized or performed or strategically internalized to be then strategically performed in order to show a vocation of Europeanization. And as you might have seen also in the book, that can mean very different things depending on who the subject of this internalization is. 
the reason why I have been uh, rather adamant about looking at Europeanization through these microcosms or everyday practices is to move beyond um, conceptualizations of Europeanization as grand strategies, as totalizing uh, ubiquitous, omnipresent uh, processes and try to uh, deconstruct them uh, in everyday practices and the way how people change behaviors or how certain practices, festivities, ceremonies, etc., are redefined based on these imaginations of Europe and based on these imaginations of how others who are currently outside of the borders of the European Union want to be perceived as European. Thank you. Yes, and uh, you already mentioned it, but um, in the book you mostly focus on the region of the so-called Western Balkans, and you argue also that international interventions in the region are often introduced in such a way that reproduces this relationship of aiming towards Europeanness, but never really achieving it, obviously. So what are some examples of tropes that reproduce such hierarchical and in this specific case also Balkanist discourses? Now, are we re meant to remain trapped in such a mode of not yet or how could this type of relationship be overcome in your view? So the way how processes of Europeanization have been given forward uh, towards the countries of the Western Balkans and more broadly how processes of Europeanization or European integration are given to countries uh, who are currently outside of the borders of the European Union, have largely retained this messianic promise of something that is to come, of something that is on arrival, but fully never present. The Bosnians are constantly pitched, reinscribed, and reproduced as almost Europeans, uh, provided that they take yet another set of benchmarks, yet another set of conditions. And so are North Macedonians, so are Kosovars, so are Albanians, etc. In this sense, political processes, uh, sometimes called bureaucratic processes, are given as uh, also these pedagogical politics towards countries and the societies outside of the European Union on how you can be better because becoming European is ultimately associated with becoming better. So how you can become more progressive and by implication, you are more inclined to become European. In the case of the Western Balkan countries, uh, becoming European is also given as well as it is internalized as an opportunity to seize becoming the Balkans and as such becoming Europeans. Let me give you an example on this. So currently, um, the countries of the Western Balkans are essentially uh, Serbia, North Macedonia, Kosovo, Albania, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and Montenegro. So these are countries that are in the Balkan Peninsula, but they are not part of the European Union. Prior to Croatia's membership to the EU and Slovenia's membership to the EU, these countries were also part of this bigger club of the Balkan countries and later on this political term, the Western Balkans, which has been created by the European Union itself to denominate countries that are outside of the, of the European Union. In this sense, uh, they have given this new impetus and this new 
let's say, civilizational border of us and others. Others in this scenario is countries that are outside of the European Union. And based on this narrative, based on this thinking framework, these countries then are subjected to a set of structural changes in terms of their political architecture, economic models, financial choices, the way how they present themselves and the way how they are part of the society of world states. Once countries such as Slovenia and Croatia became members of the European Union, they were suddenly removed from this denomination. So for the EU one, they are not part of the Western Balkans anymore. By becoming members of the European Union, they magically and automatically ceased becoming Balkan countries. And at the same time, you will also see discourses, public discourse within Slovenia and Croatia, rather um, welcoming or embracing the new denomination as being called European, and they ceased calling themselves as having anything to do with the Balkans or with the Western Balkans uh, as a whole. The denomination of the Balkans has been largely elaborated, wonderfully elaborated in the works of Maria Todorova, among others, but also in the works of Piro Regepi, where he talks about homonationalism and the way how EU's policies have also re-inscribed uh, and reinforced notions of Balkanness in, in the countries of the Western Balkans. So to a large extent, it still remains a concept that has far little to do with geography and much more to do with um, the socio-political uh, and cultural otherness that countries of the Western Balkans uh, employ. We have to also take into account that um, these, um, so these denominations of us versus others or Europeans versus non-Europeans, and in this sense, uh, EU, as opposed to countries remaining outside of the EU, countries in the Western Balkans, this is not just a rhetoric or a discourse uh, that features prominently in the discourse of the European Union or uh, in certain circles inside the European Union. The power of of words, so tropes such as uh, the Balkans, the Orient, or essentially other denominations that cast non-Europeans as others continue to be prevalent and their, their, let's say, productive tension lies in the fact that these tropes, these discourses are then co-opted and internalized by the subjects in these regions as well. Uh, so you see also people in the region, and I happen to travel a lot, both for work and for uh, pleasure in the in the region, and I do notice this um, repetitive claim of uh, people in the region who have internalized their denomination as the Balkans as something that is essentially ineffective, that is essentially at the opposite of Europeanness. And this is also something I talk about in the book as well. When you talk to people in the region, especially in the pre-pandemic period, because I, uh, I have not managed to do as extensive field work post-pandemic, but from what I have observed in the pre-pandemic period, when you talk to people in the region, the EU and the very notion of Europe is really portrayed as this pleasant field where everything functions. This is a hemisphere that is rendered as 
corruption-free, problem-free, high quality of, uh, of living across all strata of the society, utmost respect for uh, human, gender, sexual rights. And this monolithic view of how Europe is imagined outside of the EU then also reinforces this imagination of oneself as being essentially the other of this so-called uh, unambiguously civilized club. Maybe it is not uh, too much to also mention in here that I noticed a very similar trend when I was doing fieldwork in Peru. Much like uh, many of these countries in the Western Balkans, Peruvians also uh, graciously celebrate, for instance, Europe Day. They have the entire month of May where they celebrate Europe Month with you know, a set of activities uh, that are mainly on, on the cultural domain. And there you can also see this very fetishized view of what Europe is and what Europe is imagined, but at the same time, also how Peruvians imagine themselves as something that is on the lower scale of that high benchmark or that high plateau where Europe and Europeans are. That is really fascinating that it's also reproduced at a more global scale. And one of the main examples of performing Europeanness is the case of Kosovo, where international interventions had arguably the biggest influence on the process of state building, which is visible in the official flag, which has European colors and anthem officially called Europe. Uh, so what role have international organizations played in achieving forms of stability in Kosovo? And how has this affected the state and type of democracy in the country? So the structures of Western interventionism and state building have been present in Kosovo ever since uh, 1999, when thanks to a NATO intervention, the war ends and then uh, Kosovo is subjected to a set of international administrations and missions, starting with well, first, the entering of NATO troops in the country and then the deployment of the United Nations administration that de facto rules and governs Kosovo for a period of give or take 10 years, followed by the deployment of the European Union rule of law mission called EULEX, which happens to be the biggest and most expensive EU mission deployed to date. In this sense, uh, the case of Kosovo is particularly interesting to illustrate the entire set of structures of Western interventionism and how they engage in processes of intervention and then later on state building. Now, part of your question is the concept of stability, which is quintessential to the way how these missions and these sets of intervention in Kosovo have taken place. When you look at the experience of the United Nations in Kosovo, for instance, you will notice it very early on, and not just from their mission statement, not just from their own discourse, but also in the way how the very materiality of their politics have been and their projects has been geared towards, towards maintaining a certain stability. So not necessarily creating and consolidating democratic institutions, but the creation of democratic institutions, the creation of a favorable legal infrastructure, the creation of an architecture of a barbarian state, for instance, had to be subordinate to the notion of stability. So primarily these missions have been preoccupied, if not obsessed with the notion of stability. Now, when you look at how did they conceive of stability, this primarily meant the lack of 
armed friction between the Albanians and the Serbs in, in Kosovo. Other ethnic groups, the Roma, Bosniaks, um, the Turks, Gorani, other minorities were not really part of the problematization of the developmental processes in Kosovo. So Kosovo had been downgraded into this problem that is essentially about the perennial fights and the so-called ancient hatreds between the Serbs and the Albanians. And everything else had to be uh, subordinated to the idea of maintaining a certain stability in between these groups. This was, again, uh, to a large extent, what characterized the UN mission in Kosovo. Um, a successive mission uh, of the European Union, because it had a different mandate and it had much more limited responsibilities and scope, it was specifically dealing with issues in justice, so the prosecution of war crimes and high-profile cases, for instance, you can still trace the very essence that the very essence of maintaining this form of interethnic stability is co-constitutive to how the mission had been thought of and how the mission was uh, was deployed someone else asked me i think very recently whether in my uh, critique to the international interventions in kosovo has there been any positive uh, or um, has there been any success stories, as they like to call it? I believe this was a question addressed in one of the EU institutions recently in Brussels. And I think there is also a bit of a of an intellectual uh, fallacy, if not an intellectual laziness, to just look at you know what has been successful and what has not been successful when we look at such large scale missions, because we first and foremost have to problematize a bit the question: successful for whom? and successful to what end if uh, we're talking about measuring success of an EU mission based on the mission statement that they set for themselves in Brussels. This is one way at looking at effectiveness or success. Uh, if you want to look at how this has Im impacted developmental or democratic processes in the ground, this is a different kind of intellectual exercise. So usually before I engage in any type of this analysis, for me, it's very important to further problematize, not just for the sake of a discursive exercise, but to problematize um, effective or successful for, for whom. There have been a set of, um, because these missions have been very much designed and deployed to really create institutions from scratch. They have, of course, laid down the, uh, the groundwork for very promising democratic practices to take place in Kosovo, for instance. One example I can give to you is that when I work with similar um, organizations, for instance, in Serbia or Albania and in Kosovo, I do notice a very different working culture of the civil society, for instance, in Kosovo and in Bosnia and Herzegovina, because they have been exposed to these large scale international administrations, they have really learned the language of, for instance, applying for funds of organizing certain events in a very European or, or in a very EU, EU format. So there you see directly the impact of these international administrations and international projects in the countries of the Western Balkans. But you, you said now that the creation of these institutions was starting from scratch, basically, but there have been institutions before in Kosovo. So what do you mean from scratch? Well, um, 
because this is a podcast, I did not uh, manage to put this on uh, on airports. But the the way how international intervention and international missions have deployed themselves in Kosovo, and the way how they communicated this deployment and intervention to the rest of the world was to create this idea that we're intervening and year zero starts here. So there was this um, almost unorganized amnesia as to what the legacy or what the memory, however problematic or different or underdeveloped or whatever you may call it, had existed priorly in the place. So the idea was that we will now embrace collectively and uncritically this new European democratic open market um, logic of uh, building a state, hence creating that year zero and we start from from scratch and we start to create institutions as if from scratch. So the previous legacy, the pre-war legacy, so socialist uh, remnant legacy was not only deemed ineffectual, but also was deemed as something that was uh, arguably more backward in comparison to this newly promised project that was afoot. In the case of Kosovo, this tends to be even more complicated because throughout the decade of the 1990s, because of the repressive regimes uh, initiated by the government in Belgrade and because of the apartheid-like regime in which Albanians in Kosovo lived for the decade of the 1990s, they had developed and organized an entire structure, an entire parallel state within a state. And this parallel state, as the Manifesta Biennale, the Nomadic Manifesta Biennale testified uh, last year in Pristina, organized itself from the bureaucracy to protocol to uh, social security to a medical sector to the education sector. So it was a fully fledged state administration conducted parallel to the Serbian state and managed in exile, managed through the diaspora, primarily in Switzerland and in Germany. So to the contrary, there was quite some um, creative knowledge and heritage, you can say, not just socialist, but also there was this entire parallel heritage that was left untapped. That also had to be casted aside to make room for the year zero so that the new glorious project can start on a clean slate. Uh, you know, the very idea that you can create a form of a tabula rasa and then start to build up uh, from then onwards. And I don't think uh, these processes were really conducted with like an, uh, a well thought out evil plan so that we have to, you know, completely forget about this. But the way how the very uh, engineering of the new state building processes in Kosovo took place rendered the previous experiences, so the apartheid system, as well as the previous socialist legacy, as being completely irrelevant and um, backwards to be even taken into consideration as having an added value to potentially redefine this new system and recreate something that would have been more in line with the socio-political context in place. Thank you. Yes, and to continue, in the book you explicitly omit the case of Serbia because of lack of space, but could I nevertheless ask you to briefly elaborate on whether Serbia also performs this Europeanist especially in today's context of the war in Ukraine and its refusal to introduce sanctions towards Russia. Thank you. So yes, the, the book deals with a handful of chapters wherein I 
zoom in into processes of the creation of the flag in the national anthem in Kosovo. And then I look at how the uh, political and the public elite in Kosovo distances itself from, from Islam and subjects of, let's say, of, of uh, Muslim identification. And then I look at the recreation of the public space in Skopje in North Macedonia and also the celebrations of Europe Day in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And because of lack of space, indeed, um, Serbia is one of the cases that is omitted in the book. For this particular book, I did extensive fieldwork and ethnographic research, and the inability to do justice to such a project in the case of Serbia led me to completely omit it from the book. However, um, you could notice uh, and you can notice a lot of these processes and fragments of this imagination and portrayal of Europe, as well as a certain internalization of otherness in response to processes of Europeanization in the case of Serbia too. Now this might differ depending on whether you look at, let's say the more uh, urbanite elites or whether you go more down to the Sanjak re uh, region, you might get different nuances, but I think in the grand scheme of things, it would not be significantly different from what we have observed in the cases of um, Bosnia-Herzegovina or North Macedonia, for instance. In particular, in the case of Serbia, I think the performativity uh, is even further layered because as opposed to countries such as Albania and Bosnia-Herzegovina and, and Kosovo, where you have this very, at least verbally, very clear pro-European vocation, in the political elite in Serbia, in the uh, current political elite, but not only, you would also uh, be able to trace then these uh, performances or performativity of, of what can be called traditional Serbianness by invoking uh, allegiances with the Orthodox Church, with what Russia represents today, but also historical ties uh, towards Russia, as well as the civilizational that Russia has been pitched against in relation to the West as well. The case of Serbia is additionally uh, even more interesting in this regard, especially in relation to, um, to NATO as one of the structures of Western interventionism. In uh, 1999, NATO bombed uh, Serbia's military sites for 78 days. And as we have seen, this has uh, been a recurring theme and it has very much defined, redefined and reshaped uh, Serbian politics, not just in relation to Kosovo, not just in relation to the West, but also in relation to how Serbs perceive themselves as well. So I would say in the case of Serbia, there might be a three-layered uh, three gradation of performativity. So there is a certain sense of uh, performing European by invoking into certain historical processes and traces of development as well. And then you can also discern very clearly uh, the performative exercises that pitch Serbia as part of a different non-Western civilizational block as well. And I think lastly, and probably even more importantly at this point, is that there is a lot of uh, performativity of, Serb of the Serbian-ness itself. Uh, after uh, the dissolution of uh, former Yugoslavia, after the successive wars in which Serbia has been the main actor in carrying out these warfares, and then the NATO bombing, and then the continuous dispute 
over the status of Kosovo and what Kosovo represents for Serbia, we are constantly, over the past 10 years especially, we have constantly seen this performative act of Serbianness. So there is this everyday practice of performing a certain vision of what a Serbian citizen is and what does that uh, mean in relation to their sense towards Kosovo, towards the West, towards the EU, NATO and Russia. The last question is that obviously the process of EU accession has been lately a main facilitator in the ongoing negotiations around normalizing relations between Serbia and Kosovo. Um, however, elsewhere you write about how the process of EU enlargement is replaced by initiatives such as the Berlin process, at least temporarily. So how does this replacement of the EU enlargement with programs such as the Berlin process affect these chances of normalization? So just to contextualize, I think earlier on, I have written something about enlargement process, EU enlargement being, um, if not clinically dead, at least in a coma for the moment. In 2016, we have the closing off of the DG enlargement and what used to be DG enlargement has been brought together with, with DG near. That was uh, not just a symbolic halt to the processes of enlargement. We also have to contextualize that this was happening at a period when the EU was grappling with a set of financial, political, and moral crises as well. Uh, I think it was a momentum of um, where there was a need of an inward looking into what is happening inside the European Union. We had Brexit, and then we were still dealing with the repercussions of the financial crisis, and there was a devastating refugee crisis that continues to this very day, including the so-called democratic backsliding in a number of countries, such as Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary. To that end, there was little animo, uh, perhaps logically, to keep the mantra or the processes or the project of enlargement still alive. But that also sent a different kind of message to the countries of the Western Balkans who are still in this waiting room. Uh, they are in this invisible waiting room to one day potentially become members of the European Union. And because of this halt in enlargement, we had this... Um, in a way, an outsourcing of EU enlargement to processes such as the Berlin process, an intergovernmental initiative where Germany had the main, uh, well, the lead and became the main actor of it. Then also smaller scale projects uh, that were, if not directly initiated by the EU, they were largely supported by the EU, such as the Open Balkan Initiative, for instance. And I think all of these new uh, this inflation of new initiatives to outsource processes that were previously associated with enlargement really testified that that project is currently on hold. Um, that decentralization of enlargement, so to speak, with different processes did further send the signal of an EU that is detached from the idea of including countries of the Western Balkans inside uh, the Union. We have had then also uh, numerous cases of the no votes from the, let's say from the, from countries such as France or the Netherlands when it came to visa liberalization policies with Albania, North Macedonia. And in the grand scheme of processes of Europeanization, this did testify for 
a complete lack of, of animo. On top of this all, we have had the process of the, the so-called EU-facilitated dialogue between uh, Belgrade and Pristina, where the EU casts itself as merely facilitator. But this process has been going on from the early 2000s. So it has been a good decade of negotiating for the normalization of relations. The last agreement of 2023, the one we saw in Brussels, uh, is again yet another vague document, um, much like the rest that have been rather vague and very much prone to interpretation, in addition to being plagued by lack of implementation. And in that sense, there is, in my opinion, a bit of a step back in this process of normalization of relations, because the document says this is not an agreement on normalization, which is the very name of the, of the entire project, but on the path to normalization. Uh, so I don't know what is being renegotiated uh, in the back scene, because we don't, we don't see the negotiations. We also don't see in great details what has been negotiated. This has also been a major problem of this entire process, that it is not transparent. The EU has an entire media machinery and a website for every single thing, but there is no website where you can trace the process of the dialogue between Kosovo and Serbia, even less so a, a place, a website or a repository where you can find all of the agreements. And I think that also says something in relation to what kind of an actor uh, in international negotiations the EU is, but also on the on the very complicated process that the EU has been has been dealing with in in this case. Absolutely, but it's uh, somehow also now that you explain it like that, it does seem like a performance of negotiations that again never really happen. So normalization that is always to come or something like that. When I talk about performativity in the book, it is not. Um, I think in the conclusion, I do go back to how Europe performs itself. So Europe also performs Europeanization. Europe also performs itself as this place where rights are guaranteed, the systems function, and uh, corruption is very difficult to find, if not inexistent, right? So this is the image that it portrays of itself outside in the world, and this is also how it re-legitimizes itself. And a microcosm of this exercise of how the EU performs imaginations of Europe as this grand project is the dialogue between Kosovo and Serbia. Because many times we have seen that this dialogue has been more important for the EU itself rather than for countries that are negotiating or the, as they call it, the parties that are negotiating. When we had this flare-up of tensions with the license plates two years ago and last year again, we could see how senior EU officials, senior EU officials who had been directly involved in the dialogue, were coming with public declarations to say that parties should sit and uh, they should de-escalate from violence, completely oblivious to the fact that the parties, or at least one of the parties, was merely trying to implement what had been agreed in Brussels with the help and with the facilitation of the EU, which to me raised questions at the time, and it still raises questions, whether the EU is actually aware of its own involvement in, in the process. Um, 
Now, the answer to this question, uh, otherwise rhetorical, is not as important as uh, the question that we need to problematize. For whom is this dialogue more important? Is it for the EU or for the parties that are involved? So in a nutshell, performativity is not just, you don't find Europe being performed in the streets of Lima or in Pristina or in Sarajevo. You find uh, all of these performances in the EU quarter, very much so. Thank you for the conversation. It was very interesting. And thank you for joining us and sharing your insights on the topic. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Um, in this episode, we spoke with Vyosa Musliu about her book, Europeanization and State Building as Everyday Practices, Performing Europe in the Western Balkans, exploring the complexities of EU integration, what it means to perform Europeanness, and what are the implications for the Western Balkan societies. We'll see you next time on Review of Democracy.